The political season is heating up. We're into the fall, and the uh, Democratic primaries are just around the corner. And so who better than someone that uh, was a right-hand man to Hillary Clinton, a right-hand man to Joe Biden, a right-hand man to President Barack Obama, Jake Sullivan, as our guest today. Jake has worked with all of these people as an advisor and was actually the debate coach for uh, Hillary Clinton, was on the team for for. Uh, helping to coach Barack Obama in the debates as well. And uh, not only that, but uh, he was one of the lead negotiators for the U.S. in the uh, Iran uh, nuclear deal. This is someone that's had a front seat at the table at the highest level of the country. Uh, He's our guest today, and it'll be great to hear about his experiences, what he learned, and uh, maybe what he's seeing in the future. Jake Sullivan. This is Sid Finkelstein, and welcome to the SIDcast. My guest today is Jake Sullivan. Hey, Jake. Thanks for having me here. I really appreciate it. It's great to, uh, it's great to have you. And you, um, you, you've, have, uh, you've had an amazing career, and I'm looking at you, and I'm saying, wow, he's really young. Uh, so there's a long uh, runway still, still to come. But it all starts somewhere. You grew up in Minnesota and uh, Minneapolis? Yep, in Minneapolis. And Minneapolis. And I think when you were young, you... Um, what did you do? You kind of knew the capitals of the world or something? Like you were into the, some global thing as, as a kid even. Yeah, ironically, you know, Minneapolis is pretty far away from oceans and foreign countries yes. other than Canada, of course. Uh, our friendly neighbor. Which, sorry, you know, I'm Canadian, just so you know. Oh, there you yeah, go. Yeah, I they, said our friendly that's neighbor. That's why we're to the connecting North. Minnesota, yeah, exactly. Canada, same thing. Exactly. <laughs> uh, we compete for who can be nicer between uh, wow. Minnesotans. We'll and take you on in that. Minnesotans <laughs> and Canadians. Uh, but even so, my parents, when we were little kids, uh, I had four siblings, bought a globe and put it in the middle of our kitchen table where we ate all our meals. Yep. And I would sit there and spin the globe. And by the time I was 10 or 11, uh, I'd memorized the capital of every country in the world. I've now forgotten like 30% of them. Also, some new countries have been added. I, I was just thinking there have been so. some new countries yeah. and I don't know if any yeah. have Well, the breakup of the Soviet Union created a whole new set of oh, stands and yeah, other things right, that right, I, right. I hadn't mastered at that age when yeah. I only needed to know Moscow. And then also uh, later, I guess uh, it was part of your college applications, when when you answered the question, what do you want to do, what's your, your, your goal in life, whatever, you said something like, you know, international lawyer and a diplomat. And that's what you did. Yeah, it's funny. Just over this past Christmas, uh, I, my father found an old set of files, which were copies of my college applications. And in them, I had to describe what I wanted to do when I grew up. I was 17 years old at yeah, the time yeah. in, in the heartland. And I wrote a diplomat and an international lawyer at 17. I'm now 42 years old. And I guess I'm pretty boring because you, you that's kind of what I went and did. <laughs> why, why do you think you – I mean, where did that come from at such a young – age, like this is what you want. Part of it is my parents Mm -hmm. instilled in us uh, a sense that there was a big wide world out there Mm -hmm. and that we had to engage with it, Mm -hmm. uh, that we had to be connected to it, that we had to look beyond just our community. And then secondly, actually Minneapolis and the Twin Cities, it's an incredibly cosmopolitan place. Uh, It's a place that had enormous numbers of refugees. When I was young, uh, there was a very large Hmong community of people who had come over at the end of the Vietnam War. Hmm. Uh, from Laos and, and um, also a Vietnamese community from Vietnam. Later, the Somali community, the Liberian right. community in Minnesota grew very large. And people in the Twin Cities are engaged and active on a whole range of different global and international issues. And so I always thought, and, and also the last thing is I grew up as a child of the late Cold War, um, you know, mm-hmm. where in the 1980s, 
my life was sort of steeped in Red Dawn and Rocky Four, and you know, oh, right, the, right. <laughs> the f- and then ultimately the fall of the Berlin Wall. When I was in high school, Mikhail Gorbachev came to Minneapolis, Did he? went to lunch at a house a few blocks from me. Wow. So I there there was a lot of ways in which growing up in a middle American city in the 1980s, early 1990s, um, you know, made me and a lot of people that I knew see that we could contribute to and participate in the big global affairs yeah, of our time. Right. Although, of course, you know, not everyone in Minnesota ended up trying to do what you ended up doing. True, true. So parents and circumstance and luck and randomness and a lot of other things that make up all of our lives. So what, was your, you know, what were your mom and dad like? Uh, my mom and dad were, you know, remain uh, phenomenal influences in my life. My dad, when I was growing up, was working for the Minneapolis Star Tribune, mm-hmm. uh, which is the newspaper, not as a journalist, but on the business side. Okay. Uh, and then he subsequently went to the University of Minnesota um, at, in the journalism school to study the economics of new media because really? he had encountered the early years of uh, the ways in which newspapers... He felt that while he was working... There at the newspaper. So, yeah, in the 1990s, he started to see Mm -hmm. that the digital revolution was going to have a major impact on the economics of newspapers and, um, you know, shifted his focus to research and teaching from actually being at the Star Tribune. My mom was a um, a teacher, public school teacher, a librarian, and ultimately a guidance counselor in the Minneapolis public school system. Mm -hmm. And uh, the two of them were very invested in our education. I mentioned that there were five of us and four siblings. I'm the second. My older brother went to Cornell. I went to Yale, and my three younger siblings all went to Yale. So my parents were active and engaged in making sure we got real Wow, that's an 80% market share for Yale. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Here you are hanging around in Dartmouth, so that's I know, <laughs> I know. My parents sort of, you know... They're like, okay, fine, darling. Don't go, don't go there. <laughs> uh, and so um, um, what about teachers, uh, influential teachers in grade school, middle school, but maybe high school in particular? I'm sure it, once you get to Yale, it's a whole different story. But uh, I know for myself, um, there, were, there were two high school teachers that were incredibly influential um, uh, for me. One who was an English uh, composition, as we called it. I don't know if they still even call it that. Um, but you, you're, you're right. And I wrote an essay of something, and um, he sent it back, and he said, you know, Sydney, uh, you have some talent writing. You should try it. It was like a mind-blowing thing. I'm yeah. just a kid playing around with my, with my friends, and um, don't get me wrong, I'm not you know, a writer like some people are writers, but yeah, I had some talent. It changed, it, it changed how I thought about myself. It was very, very um, powerful. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I love being a teacher myself. It's a, you know, at a university level, it's a little different, but still, the impact that you can have on people when you, when you see the spark and you just kind of open the door or show them where the door is is really wonderful. So I'm wondering, you know, whether you've had uh, any of those experiences yourself as, you, as growing up or who the, influ- who the influencers may have been at that time. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, almost every year there was at least one teacher who really got me going. One in particular who stood out was a guy named Stan Fury who um, taught world history to us. Mm. And I still remember distinctly he assigned Paul Kennedy's The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. Yep. Not the whole book, but he gave us sort of sections of it. And mm-hmm. I went off to Yale and actually got to know Paul Kennedy. And he was on the faculty. Uh, yeah. Wow. Um, and still know him to this day. But in high school, getting assignments like that and having a teacher who could connect current events to 
the great trends, personalities, and conflicts of history was right. for me something that, you know, now it seems so obvious at the time, the idea that we weren't just living in the here and now, yeah, we were right. part of a right. big sweep of events and structural trends. That was a massively eye-opening experience for me in high school. But I have to say, when I went to Yale for college, um, I was, I thought of myself as, you know, a good student. I'd done really well mm-hmm. in high school. And the kids I met at Yale, at Yale College my first year and some of the classes I had made me see very clearly that I was way behind. <laughs> that, like, really? Uh, yes. That uh, I remember taking a class with a guy named Ian Shapiro, who's still on the faculty at Yale. He taught a class called Moral Foundations of Politics, which is sort of a basic political theory, political mm-hmm. philosophy class. And we're reading people like John Rawls and Robert Nozick. And I was having an impossible time making heads or tails of what these guys were talking about. And yet my classmates, uh, many of whom had, you know, gone to really high-powered schools on the East Coast for high school, were weaving these sophisticated assessments and analyses. And I was like, I am a remedial student. You were sitting back and watching them do this. Yes. And really starting to doubt myself and think, ah, you know, somehow I managed to get through Minneapolis Southwest High School pretty well. A public school. A public school yeah. and thought I was, you know, you were pretty good. kind of the man yeah. in a way, yeah. right, when it came to yeah. academics. Had never really been mm. made to feel like um, I had a big gap between yeah, me right. and my peers. And here I was at Yale feeling that. And it really took me some time to find my footing at Yale and, mm-hmm. and figure out, um, you know, that... I needed to find a different gear, a different level, and and really open myself up to new forms of analysis, new methodologies, new disciplines. So I got my act together, but that first year was pretty destabilizing. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. You know who else said something analogous to that? The president of Dartmouth, Phil Hanlon. Oh, really? Yeah. uh, He was taking math classes. Of course, he became a math teacher, right? Yeah, of course. And he didn't like them. Uh, In fact, I think he even said he hated them. And uh, he did turn it around, as we well know, because, you know, he ended up publishing articles as a Dartmouth student in in top math journals, then got a Ph.D. and, you know, the rest is history, as they say. Right, right. Yeah. Actually, something that happened to me when I went for my Ph.D., I, I... I may have I may have alluded to this story in another podcast. So listeners, you know, this is a test to see if anyone's paying attention. So um, one of the first days was this multivariate statistics class that is required for all social science. My, my PhD was in was in social psychology and, and business. And um, uh, we we were sitting in the cafeteria, I don't know, four or five of us waiting for the class. It was right in September, one of the first classes. We had this long problem set of problems to do, tough problems and I don't know, we ended up talking about one of them, and there was this woman who was explaining how she went about it, and I knew it wasn't right because I was, wasn't the way I did it, and I was sure I had it right, and I started to, I guess I'm a nice guy, I started to feel bad for her, but, you know, I didn't say anything. Uh, and guess what I'm about to tell you, right? Yeah, right. You show up in class, and she nailed it, and I was completely <laughs> wrong. And I said, holy cow, what just happened yeah, here? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, well, it teaches you humility, which is always a good lesson. It teaches you you're better, you're better not let anyone else outwork you because, you know, some of them have certain advantages you might not have. Uh, but it also uh, teaches you respect uh, as well. Man. Yeah. Great lessons. Absolutely. Great lessons. I guess you figured out a few things because you ended up going to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. Yes. <laughs> I got, as I said, I got my act together. Uh, and, but I really do think if I hadn't had that experience at the beginning, 
I would not have approached academic life at Yale with the intensity and the purpose that I did, that actually facing, um, you know, the challenge up front made me want to really prove that I could do it. And right. I think that had a lot to do with me ultimately succeeding over the course of my time. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting idea about, um, you know, the aspirations you have and then the bumps in the, ro in the road, res resilience, bouncing back, being able to do it. Some people won't, of course. Many people try and are not successful, but some... Uh, some, some get there. Yeah. So, uh, so obviously the Ro Rhodes Scholarship is extremely prestigious. Why did you want to go in that direction? I mean, why, why maybe it's a, it's a dumb question. Why did you want to become a Rhodes Scholar? Because it's like one of the greatest things you can do. I get that. But is there any other thing you were thinking about? Well, a couple things. First, I knew I wanted to keep studying international relations. Yep. And uh, the Oxford offered a master's, a two-year master's in IR that I found really attractive because it was mostly focused on doing writing as opposed to coursework. Uh, and it gave me a chance to write a thesis on the peace process in Northern Ireland, which was a subject I had been quite passionate about. Um, I wanted to study abroad. Uh, and I loved the idea of actually having a two-year all-expenses-paid opportunity mm -hmm. to immerse myself not just in a rich intellectual community, but with incredible people, incredible Americans, my fellow Rhodes Scholars, but also incredible people from around the world. Mm -hmm. and, and then to have experiences there, you know, like debating on the floor of the Oxford Union or uh, doing work for Time Magazine, which I did while I was um, at Oxford, that I knew if I was ultimately going to go on to law school and, and pursue other things, I wouldn't get a chance yeah, again. Right, and right, so right. it was two incredible years. If I had to do, if I could go back and do it over again, I would have extended it to three or maybe four. Some people do that as part of their yeah. They they let you stay three if you want, and after two, I thought, God, yeah. I'm getting old. I've got to get back and go to law school. And yeah. now, when I look at that in hindsight, that I realize how kind of learning, foolish right? huh, that is. And how, so many people are in a hurry. Yeah, it's one of the pieces of advice I give young people now. Is you, it's very difficult to have the perspective of someone who's ten or twenty years or thirty years older looking back and saying. Um, very few of those people will say, man, I'm really glad I raced through all my young experiences and got into the, <laughs> got into the workplace. So, so Almost true. nobody says that. That's right. It's called life. It's called living. It's experience. And one of the questions I like to ask people, maybe that's your answer, is if you could go back and talk to your 21-year-old self, what would, you, what would you tell yourself knowing what you know now about, about the world, about life? And would it be, you know, take your time? Yes, it absolutely would. Yeah. And, and in fact... Um, one of the memories of my 20s that really stands out for me, and this was when I was already deeply immersed in law school uh, and kind of on my way down that track, so I randomly found myself on a plane sitting next to Joe Nye, who was the dean of the Kennedy School at the time okay. um, and is now a, uh, an emeritus professor at Harvard and, and is a giant in the field of international relations, mm -hmm. somebody who I had read in college and looked up to, and there I was sitting next to him on a plane. And so I took the opportunity to say, do you have any advice for someone like me? And he said, yes, life is long, um, not short. People always tell you life is short, yeah, but life yeah. is long. Now, it may get cut short, of course. but think about how many mm -hmm. years you have to contribute, to accomplish, to learn. Mm -hmm. And when you back that up, don't rush. Take your time. Have enriching experiences in your 20s. Do things you will not otherwise have the opportunity to do later. Yeah. And, you know, I had my two years in Oxford and had some remarkable experiences. Right. Um, right. 
including, you know, uh, spending some, you know, getting arrested in Turkey. Uh, that doesn't sound like a remarkable It was. It, I mean, <laughs> for a while it could have been really bad, but... They um, made movies about things like exactly. that. Exactly. They're not good ones. It was a, it was a misunderstanding that got worked I'm out sure eventually. <laughs> but, you know, things that young people should be doing. Not yeah, yeah. precisely that, but, um, uh, you know, mm. the, the kind of spontaneous, um, cool, random uh, types of things that make you a more well-rounded person... And if I had to go back and do it over again, I would have taken more time. Yeah, and the, and the things you learn from variation of experience, just different things. Right. You just you're always learning. Right. So uh, I know you went back to Turkey maybe many times in, in, yeah. in, in, <laughs> as, as, as a diplomat. Did they have a record of you? They talked to you. I never them? asked them. But didn't didn't well. want to. Um, well. Yeah, didn't want them going to. Yeah, open I'm that the old guy files, that. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so but I, I do know I was I was welcomed welcomed in good stead in Turkey, yes. uh, you know, as a as always an adult good. and as a always diplomat. Yeah. So uh, at, at Oxford, you you said you had some interesting experiences, and you were part of the debate team, or was right. So you must have debated some pretty interesting people, I guess. Yes. Um, so the debate at Oxford had two dimensions. One was competitive debate against other universities, mm-hmm. the kind of the normal way you think about a debate team, yeah. and the other was. Um, public debates in the Oxford Union, which mm-hmm. is this grand old hall mm-hmm. uh, with two levels. So you're, you're speaking to the audience before you, but also looking up into the rafters to students hanging over the edge. And There's a lot, there are a lot of people there. there a lot of people. And for these big public debates, you dress up in a tuxedo wow. or an evening gown. Wow. And it's all very formal. Uh-huh. Uh, and you've got the box, the speaker's box next to you that you can put your hand on or bang on or, or do as you will with. Uh, and I at one point debated Benazir Bhutto, who was the former prime minister of Pakistan, who was subsequently assassinated, actually, um, mm. when she went back to try to wow. resume the, the prime ministership. Mm. Um, she had previously been a president of the Oxford Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, she went to Oxford as a student. And so I was debating her um, while looking past her to a large portrait of her on the wall. So this was a kind of intimidation <laughs> yes, factor, nice. right? I looked behind me. There was not a portrait the, of me on the wall. You didn't see anything. So, huh? no. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a good technique on her part. Yeah, yeah, it? exactly, exactly. Yeah, do you remember what you debated about? Uh, we debated about um, the question of whether um, Islam and the West were incompatible. And the way that it works at the Oxford Union is the motion is decided and it's meant to be provocative. And if you are the union debater, you have to take the provocative side. So I was asked to propose the uh, the motion, Islam is incompatible with the West. Now you, have I tried to defend, to re- you have to defend that. Defend that. Now, I tried to redefine it <laughs> in ways to narrow it, make it something more palatable, um, which was essentially about um, uh, the degree to which countries in the modern Middle East were set up structurally effectively for democracy. That's how I tried to redefine it. But of course, Benazir Bhutto is a canny politician, and she took it back up to the level of, you know, let's not essentialize religions and persons, and she kicked my butt. I mean, it wasn't wasn't close in the end. Well, that was quite a a competitor you had there, to be sure. Yeah. yeah, that's that's pretty exciting. And what did you mention about Time Magazine? You wrote for Time Magazine, worked for them? Right. So uh, I, as I headed off to Oxford, I had the opportunity to encounter Walter Isaacson, um, and uh, who had been the editor of Time Magazine, 
And he scrawled on a piece of paper the name of a guy, Chris Redman, who was the editor of Time Atlantic, which was the European version of Time based in London. He said, call this guy when you get there. Um, And so I did. And and Chris was kind enough to first give me a researcher role and then ultimately to give me the chance to write some pieces for the international edition and to contribute as a reporter to pieces in the in the regular old mm-hmm. American time, mm-hmm. um, which was a really exciting opportunity. But it also taught me I did not want to be a journalist because I found um, really pushing people mm-hmm. and asking, you know, getting in their face and asking yeah. the hard question and following up and being persistent was not really that wasn't your thing. My thing, but you no yeah. doubt have been. Uh, treated to that uh, to, to that treatment. Yes, over many the many times, right? <laughs> but I yes. guess knowing about it from the inside gives you additional ammunition how to avoid it. <laughs> yes, right, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and did you know Walt? Do you know Walter Isaacson very well? Uh, yes, uh, I've I've stayed in touch with him over the years because his I, books, I of course, have been un- unbelievable. Yeah, uh, he is one a, after another. He is a remarkable mind because you know, he's capable of these incredible, rich biographies. But then when you read the biographies, you see he's also speaking to themes that are really kind of relevant and resonant to today. He's deeply engaged in things like the, the renewal of New Orleans, um, which is what he's putting a lot of his time into now. He ran the Aspen Institute, so he had to cover yes. everything from emerging technology to the U.S.-China relationship yeah. and, you know, all points in between. There are, there are not that many people like him um, in, in public life today, and it, he's the kind of person who we could use more of. Yeah, and the selection of his books, I mean, very, very famous people, obviously, but really in, um, yeah, Steve Jobs, Leonardo da Vinci, yes. right? And uh, did he do the book on Einstein as well? Uh, he may have. He He's, did, he and Franklin, too, I think. Ben Franklin, yeah. yeah really, uh, really fantastic uh, thinker, and uh, uh, his books are, are, are fascinating. We, uh, I'm part of a men's book club, and uh, we've, we're starting to go through some of his books. Right. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci was uh, one of the more recent ones. And what a book that was. <laughs> yeah, my dad actually just finished reading uh, Da Vinci, which I have in my never-ending stack of mm-hmm. books that I have yet to get do you ever, through. Do you, do you read uh, physical, real books? Or Mostly, Kindle? yes. Mostly real books. And that Well, that's actually my wife's influence. Hmm. She is an inveterate purchaser of books. Yeah. Like, if I don't try to, you know remind her that she hasn't read the things she ordered yesterday, she'll be ordering three more today yeah. of the most wide variety conceivable and all the physical copies of the books. Like she will not, resolutely will not read uh, off of a Kindle. Have, have you ever tried Audible? Or Yeah, we're getting into that actually. Yeah. And I do now a fair amount of driving between here in Portsmouth, here in Boston, other places. And so I become... Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts, but I've started listening to um, to books on tape as well. What yeah. I call books on tape—that's what which, they used to call it. Right? Know, books on tape. Show, What's tape, Daddy? Right, exactly. <laughs> which shows, uh, I guess, yes, I'm I'm an old soul. Yeah, I, I started with Audible as well. I find it really uh, fantastic. There's a new um, biography on Churchill that you may have seen or read. I'm trying to remember the the author's name. Maybe Andrew Taylor. I hope I have that right, but we'll check that. Uh, had amazing reviews in New York Times and uh, London Times. Um, and, of course, so many books have been written by Churchill. But the beauty of this book is that there's so many areas where the author quotes really appropriately um, Churchill in key times. And he, of course, was a, a genius writer, yeah, one amazing. of the most famous and, and, and powerful orators ever, probably. Uh, and, uh, and the person that, uh, that does the reading um, 
of, um, of the book uh, has the ability to, to, to adopt the right voice and, and convey it really really something. I was recently reading uh, an excerpt of Churchill's writings from before the First World War. You know, he's, of of course, much more famously associated with the Second World War. But as a historian, Mm -hmm. uh, a military historian, as an observer, I mean, the guy, it's, you read his stuff, and it's just such a pleasure. Yeah. Both the actual prose and the insights. Right. If you like words, then listening to him the way he, and yeah. Uh, yeah. what I'm getting from this book, by the way, is that his uh, speeches in the House of Commons it would be packed because it would be one of some yeah, of the people, best entertainment. Yeah, yeah, there you go, right? And he even right. made because uh, they didn't get paid very much, and he didn't come from an, like many other um, um, politicians in the UK, especially in England. In that time, were very wealthy. He did not have a lot of money, and so he made a lot of money from speeches. Um, he did multiple tours of America, in fact, which, which is during those tours he came to love, love, love the U.S., which he didn't. He was quite suspicious years earlier. And he also was a journalist. He, he would write wherever he went. He would write these articles for all kinds of newspapers and magazines and made his living. Anyway, so lots to, lots to talk about. Um, let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about uh, what Jake was up to after graduating from Yale uh, law school and uh, work our way towards some of the really interesting insights and experiences he's had uh, working for um, President Obama, um, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and others. We'll be right back. Earlier this year, I met a young woman who was a, a journalist who uh, decided that she wanted to get uh, to have a bigger impact on what was going on as opposed to just reporting about what was going on. And uh, she actually ended up... Uh, becoming a uh, humanitarian worker in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria, just an unbelievable uh, job that she continues to, to have. And uh, some of what Jake just said um, a second ago reminded me of, of her because Jake, of course, also had uh, journalism in his blood and early, early on and decided, you know, I, I want to I wanna play a different role. And it comes to mind this, uh, this idea of how we, uh, once again, we, you know, we, we craft our lives and we try different things and we see what works and what doesn't. And every, every step is uh, of our career track. It's, none of it is a waste. All of it is, is something that we're learning from. And maybe, it's, maybe the lesson is, this is not exactly right for me. I need to pivot. I need to do something a little bit differently. And that's worth it. That's a good lesson. That's actually something you maybe you wouldn't have been able to know that if you, had, if you hadn't taken that first step. So uh, I think that's a good lesson. It's actually a lesson that I share with a lot of my own, my own students who are thinking about their own, their own careers. Too many people think they have to be perfect on everything. The answer is no, you, you, you don't. You just have to try it. You just have to be in the game. And then you need to be flexible, adaptable, and self-aware enough to make the changes when the changes are needed. This is the SIDCast, and we're back with Jake Sullivan. Jake, uh, uh, after graduating from Yale Law School, you were back in Minnesota, and you were practicing law and actually doing a lot of things. I don't want to give it short shrift, but I want to start to get to some of the, some of the work you did in D.C., and you... Uh, you met or started to work for Senator uh, Amy uh, Klobuchar. Uh, how did you meet her, her and how did that kind of come about? So I'd actually known Amy for years because my best friend in high school ran her county attorney campaign. Huh. Uh, and uh, so I'd gotten to know Amy. I'd been at weddings with her. I'd been at other events. Mm-hmm. So when I was back working as a lawyer, while she was running for the Senate in 2006, she called me up and asked me actually if I would do her debate prep. Um, Minnesota has this tradition in the Senate races where there are eight Senate debates in the closing two months. 
including one that involves, I think, standing on bales of hay at FarmFest. Um, <laughs> You're making that point. Uh, I, I mean, I might be stretching it ever so slightly. There uh, are definitely bales of hay involved. They may not have to actually physically stand Sounds like a them. New Hampshire type of thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, and she knew I had a debate background and, and knew that I was engaged in policy issues generally. So she asked me to take a leave of absence from my law firm for September and October running into the election, which I did. And then she was elected, and she asked if I'd extend the leave of absence to come out to D.C. to get her up and running, to be part of her transition Mm -hmm. effort, to hire up her staff, to help her on policy issues while she got her feet wet as a senator. So I came out to D.C. for a few months, intending to return to Minnesota in the spring of 2007. And never quite made it back. You have, yeah, you're still you're still in D.C. for the most part. Right. Yeah. And so how long did you work for, for Senator Klobuchar? So I ended up only working for her for about that six-month stretch because I did the, the campaign for the closing two months. I did the transition. Mm-hmm. And then at the moment that I was going to kind of pack up my bags and go back to the law firm in Minnesota, I got a call basically out of the blue from Richard Holbrook, who... Uh, was a famous American diplomat, yeah. um, had been the architect of the Dayton peace accords that ended the war in Bosnia in the 90s. So someone I knew but had never spoken with. Hmm. And he calls me up because um, he had heard from a former boss of mine, his close friend, Les Gelb, um, that, you know, I was a guy interested in foreign policy and public policy generally. And he was looking to hire someone for Hillary's campaign a new presidential campaign in 2007 to do foreign policy on the campaign. And so he calls me and asks me some questions. I give answers, and they weren't good enough for him. And he just started yelling at me and telling me, you know. He yelled at you? Oh, yeah. Right in that first conversation said, you know, you're not ready for prime time, kid. You know, not good enough. Uh, But he did pass my name along to the policy director, uh, Neera Tandon, for Hillary's campaign. And because of my experience doing debate prep for Amy, um, Nira wanted me to take over the role of leading the debate prep process for Hillary in the 2007-2008 presidential primary. Um, And so I met Hillary Clinton for the first time in an interview with her in her Senate office in April of 2007. So she interviewed you to see whether she'd be comfortable with yes. you being her debate uh, guru. Yes, exactly. So what does she ask you? What kind, what's an interview like with Hillary Clinton? Yeah, well, it was totally disorienting because, of course, I'd kind of come of age in the 90s and Hillary Clinton was... Mrs. Clinton? Yes, the first, the first lady. lady of the United States. Exactly. And then she was Senator Clinton, ah. and there I am sitting in an office with her just as far from her as you and I are now mm-hmm. in this podcast. Mm-hmm. And the thing that really struck me about her was how normal she was, which is a kind of odd thing to say, I suppose. But she, with a lot of famous people, there's a kind of fog or a distance between you and them. They sort of live in their own worlds and they relate to the rest of the world in a a way that is not on kind of completely equal terms. They're they're either a little above it or a little separate from it. With Hillary, it's not like that at all. She looks you in the eye. She asks you questions. She mm-hmm. listens to your answers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, she, you know, asked me where I was from, you know, what I believed in, and then asked me what my advice to her would be about the debates and um, how she could put her best foot forward in what was then going to be 
I think, eight or ten candidates on the stage. Because remember, early in that cycle, there was John Edwards, there was Bill Richardson, there was Chris Dodd, Joe Biden, Dennis Kucinich, as well as a young senator from Illinois named Barack Obama. So these early debates were pretty crowded, and and she was asking me how I would approach um, preparing her if I were hired for the job. Uh, to be able to manage not just a one-on-one tete-a-tete, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. to manage this larger kind of atmosphere. And I guess my answers were good enough for her because she hired me to do that. She hired you to do that. So one of the things about um, uh, Hillary Clinton is, and a lot of people have commented about that, is opposite or different than what you just described, one-on-one, face-to-face. She, I don't know if it's, a, if it's a barrier, but there's something that doesn't that many people perceive her as being not quite as natural, certainly unfair comparison perhaps to President Obama who is, or maybe President Clinton for that matter. But do you, do you agree with that critique about Hillary Clinton? Because many people, you'd hear it endlessly in the press, of course, right? Right. So what's interesting is I think that critique is largely leveled at her not for how she is in person, yeah. but how she is when she's being interviewed mm-hmm. or how she comes across on television. Mm-hmm. And I think the big difference is that her warmth and her humanity, which shines through so well when you just engage with her, um, kind of disappears behind this shield mm-hmm. when she feels like she's being put on the spot. And so when she's being interviewed by a journalist, particularly a television journalist, mm-hmm. her natural instinct uh, to a question is kind of like, where are you going with this? You know, where, where, what are you trying, trying to, get to, trying to, trying to do? Whereas when you talk to her in person, there's none of that whatsoever. And one of the remarkable things for me was joining her in the State Department um, with all these foreign service officers who'd only heard about her uh, as first lady, as senator, and Mm -hmm. then as a presidential candidate. And to a person, when you talk to them about their impression of meeting her, it was almost exactly like mine from that first interview. It was like, whoa, she's so human right. and kind of normal and ask questions about our family or our love life. Um, you know, one of the things that she was deeply invested in when I was at state with her was setting me up. <laughs> she really wanted me to find a spouse. Yeah. And we would travel the world. Uh, you know, I went to 112 countries with her. And then she set up 112 dates for you. <laughs> and she literally would... People would come up to her, yeah. talk to her about issues, and she would say, Jake, where's Jake? Jake, please meet Jake. You know? ah, or that. journalists would interview her, and she'd say, hey, have you met, mm. have you met Jake? Um, so <laughs> you know, these are the kinds of things that did not shine through no. in the 2016 campaign, uh, did not shine through through much of the 2008 campaign. And part of it is that Hillary Clinton would say herself people relate to her more naturally and like her much more when she's doing a job than when she's seeking a job. Mm. Um, Now, I think that this is true of her uniquely, yes, but it is also often true of women, that this is something that women candidates have to struggle with more than men candidates do, that the striving or the seeking is somehow seen as unattractive or inauthentic. Um, And that's, that, you know, was a genuine challenge for her in, in trying to relate to the American people in the 2016 yeah. campaign. Right. And, and 2008 to some extent. And, and 2008 as well. Slightly lesser yeah. extent, yeah. but still. Yeah. yeah. So is this a, a, a things people are born with? You know, you remember the old debates we used to see on TV of President Kennedy um, uh, with Nixon. And that, those were the first televised debates. I'm sure you studied them and looked, you know, evaluated them carefully. 
and it was such a gigantic contrast. Apparently, that was one of the biggest factors in that in that election. But also, his President Kennedy's uh, press conferences it was just so natural. He yeah. would engage with people. He right. just he he loved the, the the repartee, and you you can ask me a tough question, and I could show you that I'm kind of more clever than you are, and turn yeah. around, and and it just seems like with Hillary Clinton. She may have had the same talent because certainly there's a, there's a giant IQ at work and unbelievable experience, but it was conveyed in a in a in a different way. And 2008, she had that problem. In 2016, she had that problem. And the question really is, I mean, she knew she had to get better at that. Of course, she knew that, but it didn't happen. Um, I don't know whether you have a sense, you know, is it just a personality? Uh, trait or, or 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 what what is it that uh, created that? Well, barrier? I think there's a few things at play. Number one, it's not about a, a basic capacity to connect with people because um, when she was occupying some of her big visible roles, she connected with people famously well. Um, she was an extremely popular first lady in her later years. Had you know had her enemies and detractors, but had huge champions. As senator from New York, she was beloved. And as Secretary of State, we forget this now, mm -hmm. but she had like a 70-plus percent approval rating, mm -hmm. and people saw her performance mm -hmm. in that role yeah. as being humane and yeah. intelligent mm -hmm. and fierce. And so Hillary Clinton, let's not forget, really deeply has the capacity to convey not just competence, but inspiration. I mean, she was the most admired woman in America for like 17 years running before this past year when Michelle Obama took over the spot. So I think it's not quite right to say she just can't convey properly, except in the very important but still quite narrow lane right. of being a presidential candidate, where yeah. candidate Hillary versus officeholder Hillary mm -hmm. just took on a different cast. And I think there were a number of reasons for why that was so, but they go beyond just innate talent or right, personality. Right. They have to do with context mm -hmm. and history, uh, the way the press related to her, um, her own kind of putting her guard up when she'd get into that kind of situation. Mm -hmm. And it's too bad because um, it, it is, it is you can't bad. get the job until you have won the job through the election, but she would be very good at doing the job. Right. Wasn't as good as some other candidates. I mean, it's, a, it's actually, you think about it, it's, it's a bit of a bizarre system. Yeah. Because the, the, the litmus test is your ability to be, be an entertainer of sorts. And, right. And, or that's maybe too soft a word, but being able to, to, to be the star of, of, of the show. Yeah. Uh, and hold your own against other stars. And that, that's a skill set. Yeah, I guess you could say you need to have presence you know, executive presence that we might talk about in a business school, that's a valuable thing. But there's so many other things that she brought that just never, never really got through in the end. Yeah, end. yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah. So you, so you, oh, so how do you prepare somebody for a debate? Well, first of all, uh, what I learned very quickly working with Amy and then even more so with, with Hillary is you can pretty well predict what is going to be asked in the debate. And you can pretty well predict what each of the other candidates are going to say because they're going to say mm -hmm. the same stuff they've been saying every day in their stump speeches, <laughs> yeah. just packaged for whatever the question right. before them is. Right. So once you can predict all of that, mm -hmm. you can then figure out, all right, um, when this question is asked or this candidate says this, here's 
the message you want to deliver. Here's the anecdote you Mm want to deliver. Here's the punch you want to land, whatever it is. And in that sense, it is relatively easy to kind of systematically walk through and not fully script because these are spontaneous moments, but shape the the preparation in such a way that the candidate basically knows what's coming at them and what they're going to give back. And I'll, you know, I'll just give you a very famous example um, that people think of as this great spontaneous zinger. So um, Lloyd Benson in the vice presidential debate in 88 against Dan Quayle mm-hmm. has this line where he says, uh, I knew Jack Kennedy. I served with Jack right. Kennedy. Yeah. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. And you, Senator, are no Jack Kennedy. And the place went nuts. Incredible line. Amazing, amazing, right? And it's because in the debate, Dan Quayle was asked, you're a young guy, do you have the experience to be president? And he said, well, I have as much experience. You know, even though you're vice president, you're a heartbeat away. Mm -hmm. He said, well, I have the experience that uh, as much experience as Jack Kennedy did when he was elected president. And then Benson delivers this so he knew it was coming. Blow. Now, you think watching it, wow, right. that's just presence yeah. of mind. Right. But of course, Dan Quayle had been asked that question about three dozen times over the course of the previous I, I, I three months, and he kept thing. saying the I'm same Jack thing. Kennedy. And so they're sitting around in the debate prep room before the debate, and I can picture it mm-hmm. saying, all right, he's going to do this Jack Kennedy thing. We're going to get him. You know? And then they develop, and I'm sure Lloyd Benson practiced repeatedly that exact formula, and they refined it, and then boom, he delivered it, and that's all anyone remembers from that debate. So that's what makes debate prep, you know, a kind of bizarre but pretty crucial art to, um, you know, help a candidate succeed in that format. So I'm thinking also that the ability to think on your feet and articulate a point of view, and maybe you won't get, maybe a one-on-one is a little bit different, because the other, because it's so intense and almost anything can come at you. It's not just going to be kind of things people have been saying for, forever. But um, um, you remember with uh, Chris Christie calling out uh, Senator Rubio, yes. which was the end of Rubio right. in, in, in... Right. Um, this, honestly, probably the biggest thing that people fail to do in debates is listen. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a strange thing to say, mm-hmm. but most candidates are so fixated on thinking through what they're going to say next right, right. that they're not really listening to what the other candidate says, mm-hmm. um, at least not intensely. And so opportunities kind of pass by. And what made Chris Christie a formidable debater is, of course, he couldn't have prepared for Marco Rubio to mechanically repeat the same line over and over again. Right. But he heard him do it. He listened. And then he said... The third time Rubio mm-hmm. said the exact same line, Chris Christie said, did you guys see that? Did you see what just happened? Right. You know, and it, it broke Marco Rubio's back. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that was not so much about having the zinger as it was about mm. listening for the moment. So that's that also part of the skill set. The, the Big time. And probably and the thing that, you know, most candidates are pretty good at talking. Yes. Uh, pretty good at being on their talking points. Mm-hmm. But... Some candidates are better than others at actually listening right. to what's going right. on. So after um, um, Hillary uh, lost to uh, President Obama, Hillary Clinton lost to President Obama in the primaries, you moved over to help President Obama right. in the debate preparation. Correct. So first I want to ask you an organizational team dynamics question. He already had people. Yes. And you showed up. 
Right. What was that like? So I showed up along with two other folks. Um, I was sort of the junior member of the team. Um, but typically what happens in a general election context is general election debates are at just this sort of level of magnitude greater than, yeah, than yeah, primary yeah. debates. Um, that you, you do bring in people from the outside to help the core mm-hmm. team think mm-hmm. through, okay, what's our strategy here? Um, and so uh, they felt happy to have new blood. Now, to have one of the Hillary guys in there who they'd been battling with right. over the course of the past year might otherwise have been a little awkward, but I knew a bunch of the Obama folks already, mm. and they really liked the idea of having someone who had prepared Hillary for 22 primary debates against Obama and had seen Obama at oh, his best okay. and so his you, worst. you were picking apart his weaknesses be able in to come in, Hillary. Right. Be able to come in as part Smart. of Obama's team mm-hmm. and say, you know, kind of here's how we tried to set up against you. Right. Now, right. you know, here's the kinds of things that you can do from a, pers- a completely different perspective than you've been hearing advice so far. And that was one of the great things about Barack Obama, not just in the debate prep context, but as president as well, is he always wanted those alternative perspectives that pushed him out of his comfort zone. Was it common to have the the members of the team of the members of the team of the losing or the finalists in the primary move over to the president's side? Do you know another? To a certain extent, um, that happens in every campaign. Now, yeah. with debate prep, maybe less so. Yeah. But ordinarily, um, in a primary context, the winning candidate will soak up the best talent right. of the other campaign. I would think for, for the campaigns. debate team in particular, be. I mean, especially important because your yeah. whole job was to find the weaknesses. Yeah, and this guy's exactly. kind of, uh, he didn't have a lot of weaknesses, but that was your job to find it. Right. So did you, were, did you have an interview with President Obama as well? Nope. So that I was met him different. at the first debate prep session for the general election. So uh, what was that like? Did he come up? Uh, did you go up to him? And uh, had, you were introduced Someone to him? on his team introduced us. He said, welcome aboard, and he got back to work. <laughs> and then, so there were a lot of people on the debate team. Uh, yeah, well, there were three of us who were doing the full-time kind of debate prep operation for that intensive several-week period leading up to the three debates. Mm-hmm. And then the other folks in the room were the um, the senior advisors from his campaign, David Pluff, David Axelrod, um, uh, his policy director, mm-hmm. uh, his communications director, his, his right. pollster, et cetera. Okay. And what would you say were some of the biggest differences in the debate prep, not the performance, but the debate prep for Obama versus Clinton? Well, it's a little bit hard to analogize because um, in the general election, the level of production of debate prep is so much, the magnitude so much greater because these are television events with 50 million people Mm. watching. Um, So for example, in the general, um, uh, they built the full stage. And so it was as though you were sitting in the room where the debate was going to take place with the podiums, the backdrop, the whole nine yards. And the practice debates would occur at 9 p.m. So that they they were doing it in a way to Mm -hmm. really map on. Mm -hmm. Typically in the primary, we'd be, you know, doing debate prep in a hotel in a primary state, you know, with a few folding chairs sitting around. Mm -hmm. It was a little bit more of an informal effort. But I would say one of the similarities between Secretary Clinton and President Obama 
was that they both really didn't like debate prep. I don't know any <laughs> candidate I've met who actually likes it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that probably means they're not sociopaths because <laughs> debate prep is a hard, frustrating experience mm-hmm. where you have a whole mm-hmm. bunch of people just picking apart every word you say. Mm-hmm. Um, so each of them in their own ways were you know, kind of resisting right. the exercise, yeah. Yeah. but both recognized that they it was really important to do. They had to yeah. do it, yeah. And um, uh, so what was um, President Obama like? and your interactions, your personal interactions or professional interactions with him at that time during well, the campaign? Well, it's interesting. It's, it's almost hard for me to remember because I got to know him so much better when I served in government. And so kind of my impressions okay. of him have hardened around uh, the time we spent in government. Right. But, um, you know, he was everything advertised in public and more from the minute I first met him and encountered him in these these private debate prep sessions. And one of the things that really stood out in my mind from the time was before the first debate, um, you had the Lehman collapse. And uh, John McCain went out immediately and said, we have to suspend the debate. I do remember that. And, yes. you know, stop campaigning and so forth. And Obama was so good at at once knowing the job he had immediately at hand, which was to perform well in the debate, win the election, but also keep his eye on the ball of mm-hmm. how can I contribute working with the president and Senator McCain to try to get a grip on this crisis. And so he bo- had to leave the debate prep uh, site. We, we were sort of sequestered in a hotel um, and go back to sit down with Bush and McCain in a show of bipartisan unity to mm. respond to this crisis and getting to see behind the scenes a little bit. And like I was not the most important figure in the room. I was almost more of a uh, a witness than a participant in this aspect of it right. um, as something of an outsider. But getting to see how cool, calm, collected, but yet intense he was about the balance of policy and politics in that time period was really remarkable. Right, right, great. Okay, let's take a, a short break, and when we come back with, uh, with Jake Sullivan, we'll talk about uh, your years working for President Obama and uh, especially your work on one of the most controversial uh, international deals that America's been involved with in the last, uh, in the last several years. We'll, we'll be right back. Isn't Jake interesting? I mean, these stories about President Obama and his experiences. If, uh, if you like what Jake is saying and you like the, the SIDCast, you like this podcast, well, tell, tell your friends. Tell, tell the world all about that. Uh, the more people that are subscribing, that are clicking, that are uh, reviewing, that are paying attention, the better because it allows us to have a bigger impact and uh, creates a community of people that uh, are, are interested in understanding and learning more about how each of us become who we are. So uh, if you like the podcast, uh, keep on telling your friends. Okay, we're back with Jake Sullivan. This is the SIDCast and now we're up to, let's see, 2008. Barack Obama becomes president. Hillary Clinton becomes secretary of state. And you are appointed as the deputy chief of staff for Secretary Clinton. What was that like? Uh, that was a remarkable opportunity. Um, so my role as deputy chief of staff was basically to manage policy for the secretary, which meant um, – working with all of the senior diplomats, both at the State Department and at embassies around the world, 
to uh, convey what her priorities were and what she was trying to accomplish, and then to be the channel of communication from them to her. I mean, they were dealing with her directly as well, but I was yeah. sort of the organizer and coordinator of all of the major policy initiatives that the secretary undertook. I did that for two years um, and then became the director of policy planning at the State Department. And the policy planning shop is was founded by Secretary of State George Marshall. George Kennan was its first director. Very um, famous, famous uh, diplomat. Diplomat. And it's gone downhill ever since, which <laughs> yeah, is yeah. how I ultimately uh, got to run it for two years. And that was much more about mixing my continuing work on the day-to-day with Hillary and then thinking long-term. The policy planning shop is about shaping U.S. strategy over an extended period as opposed to just dealing with the here and now with the immediate. Um, but in the context of both of those positions, Deputy Chief of, Chief of Staff and, and Director of Policy Planning, I traveled with Secretary Clinton um, to all of the countries that mm-hmm. she went to as Secretary of State, right. to 112 of them, and was uh, deeply involved in all of the major undertakings that she pursued in those four years. So along the way, you, in that job, you must have learned a, a ton. I wonder if you could share with us a couple of the things that really stick in your head uh, now that, that, that you learned about, about life, about leadership, about politics, about foreign policy, whichever. You know, probably the thing that struck me the most about those four years is I learned how policymaking is such a human hmm. exercise, that this is... You know, and I've I've said this before, but I just believe it so passionately. It's 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 imperfect people, with imperfect information, facing imperfect choices in an imperfect process, without a lot of sleep, <laughs> with personal grievances, with blind spots, mm. and so it's not surprising they're getting imperfect results. That probably above all was uh, the the lesson I took away from those four years. And just one example of that was late in my time at the State Department, uh, the, a war in Gaza broke out, uh, which included uh, Hamas and the Palestinian factions fi- firing rockets at is- Israeli towns and the Israelis uh, bombing um, Hamas positions inside Gaza. And the Israelis were getting ready to do a ground invasion. And Hillary was sent to um, uh, Jerusalem to deal with the Israelis and then to Egypt to deal with the Egyptian mediators who were negotiating mm-hmm. on behalf of mm-hmm. the um, the Palestinian factions, including Hamas. And I got deeply involved in the back and forth of those negotiations. And at the end, to create a ceasefire, um, I went to the Egyptian national security advisor at the time and said, we have from the Israelis a, a set of conditions for the ceasefire. Are these acceptable to the Palestinians, um, to Hamas and, and Islamic Jihad and the like? And the Egyptian National Security Advisor said, yes, they are. Hmm. And so the two of us looked at each other mm-hmm. and said, okay, now what? Because <laughs> now both sides have agreed to a ceasefire. How, how does this so happen? Let's just do it. And each of us are like, it's, it's just us two, just two guys right. standing here in a dingy office in Cairo. And he said, well, we're going to have to set a time for the ceasefire. What's a good time? You know, what's a good time for a ceasefire? And it's like, well, it can't be too short because then everyone might not get the message, in which case uh, there'll be violations because people continue firing rockets. can't be too long or you'll have more death. So 
how 7 p.m., you know? And it's... <laughs> that's how it came. And that's how it happened. Yeah. It happens like that. And then he pulled out a prayer rug and sat down and prayed on the fact that, you know, we had just accomplished this thing, which was ending violence and ending conflict, at least for a period of time. Uh, but so human, so not any kind of big systems hmm. operating. It's just people trying to figure their way to a solution and having only so many tools to be able to get there. And so that probably is the single biggest lesson I learned in those four years. Yeah. That's, that story I could imagine being a little bit uh, worrisome for people that think, well, the government really knows everything. Right. They, um, they're analyzing everything. They got the smartest people that are around, all of which might be true, but the uncertainty and and the fact that it boils down to people making an agreement eye to eye is still required. It's, it, it, you know, because sometimes people think we have this massive machinery. We, we have the NSA that listens to everything everybody's yeah, doing. Right. We're like we're great, but it boils down to people. Yes, that's true in any institution, in any organization. It is all the sum total of of the decisions that people are making, and people are imperfect, and they have. Yeah flaws and foibles, they have enormous creativity and talents too. And I work with some of the smartest, most capable, most experienced people ever. And I still would sometimes sit in these rooms and think there must be another room down the hall where the real government is running because we're just a bunch of men and women trying to figure it out. And I don't mean to disturb or worry people about this. This is, you know, it is true that the U.S. government has assembled an immense t- collection of talent and extraordinary capabilities, and it puts us in a position to do good things and to deliver on behalf of the promises a president makes. But no one should make any mistake that it's still, at the end of the day, um, has a human dimension, and that human dimension means there's going to be screw-ups and there's going to, we're going to fall down and, uh, you know, we're going to not see things coming that maybe we should have seen coming. And we all, I I think, have to factor that in to both what we expect of government and then how we try to shape government to be better. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, I think that's exactly right. You see that in the broader study of leadership and organizations and business, which is closer to things I've I've done. It's always about the people for better or for worse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you also, I guess, in this role, uh, would be meeting uh, with President Obama as part of the team, um, right? Like regularly, or well, uh, I met with President Obama when I was at the State Department, but really um, started engaging with him on a daily basis when I became uh, Joe Biden's National Security Advisor. So I spent uh, 2013 and 2014 as the National Security Advisor to the Vice President, but that also meant that I was part of the small group of five or six people who every morning would be in the Oval Office with President Obama um, doing what was called the PDB, the President's Daily Briefing, which was kind of covering the waterfront of foreign policy and national security issues with him. Um, And over that time, got to really see and engage with him on the way that he approached Mm. foreign policy decision-making. And did he ever kind of talk to you one-on-one or was always in this bigger group? Or did they give you certain bits of advice at various times? I mean, how did that relationship work? Well, it was interesting. He um, really uh, pushed me to be a voice in the room who would kind of question the conventional wisdom, Hmm. who would say, oh, we're going in this direction, Hmm. you know, 
is, is that exactly right? Should we be thinking about something else? And um, there was one example where he had a particularly naughty policy problem, and he called me into his office and he said, you know, I want you to write a memo on this, not really kind of doing it through the normal process of tasking the agencies mm-hmm. and collecting information, but just talk to smart people, think both inside government and outside government, think about it, and then give me your best advice. Uh, and he didn't just do that with me. I mean, he would do that with other people sure. as well. But that really stood out to me as a mark of quality leadership, um, consistent with the way that he handled the, the, the debate prep process going all the way back to the campaign. Right. Same right. kind of thing. Um, and so uh, he, you know, just he found a way to develop this great collaborative thought partnership with each of the close advisors to him. And I was blessed to have that opportunity for a period of time. Yeah. I mean, you really see leadership style and, and, and how big the impact is. Yeah. And the other thing that he was really good at was knowing when to very carefully shape the guidance that he was giving to either an individual like, like a cabinet secretary or, you know, a cabinet agency and when to kind of step back and say, I trust you. You know mm-hmm. basically what I want. Now mm-hmm. go do it. Um, that, to me, also is a mark of effective leadership, is, is having the right sense of when to hold on and when to delegate. And, you know, when my colleague Bill Burns and I were running the secret negotiations with the Iranians uh, over the nuclear deal, uh, he called us into his office and he said, I just have one piece of advice for you. Don't screw it up. <laughs> you know, go do it. I trust you. Just, you know, make it happen. All right, well, let's, you know what let's, I mean. let's talk about that. There were two of you that were charged with beginning negotiations with Iran to have them stop their nuclear program. Right. So the way it worked was um, the initial meeting with the Iranians took place in the summer of 2012 while I was still at the State Department. And President Obama and Secretary Clinton agreed that one of his uh, staffers at the National Security Council, Puneet Tawar, and myself – would go meet with a delegation of Iranians in Oman in secret Mm. to determine whether we could set a channel up or not. Mm. So we had that first meeting. And then after uh, that, the next time we went went to meet with the Iranians, Bill Burns, who was the Deputy Secretary of State, and me at that time, I had become the National Security Advisor to the Vice President, um, co-led this delegation uh, uh, of Americans and spent the next several months negotiating in secret with the so Iranians. So on the U.S. side, there were other people on your team, but you were yes. the two co-leaders. Right. And on the Iranian side, the people you first met, were they the same ones all the way through? Uh, the ones that we initially met in 2012 and in the early part of 2013 were different from the ones we met starting in July of 2013 because there was an election in Iran, mm. uh, and President Rouhani came into power and changed out the personnel who participated in the secret channel. Yeah, so um, what was it like when you met them, like the first, the first time? So the very first time we met them, um, they entered through a door on the far side of the table. We entered through a door on our side of the table. And we didn't shake hands. They made it clear they just wanted to sit down. This and was already work. prearranged. They, that you knew that wasn't right. going to happen. That's right. awkward to put your hand out and no yeah. one's. That's a bad exactly. start. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we sat down, and um, it was tentative, very tentative. Each side was 
deeply nervous about carrying this forward. There had not been a sustained diplomatic bilateral dialogue. There had been contacts here and there, but a sustained dialogue, mm-hmm. which is what we were trying to establish mm-hmm. since 1979. 1979? Uh, yes. And what year are we now? 2012? This is 2012. Wow. Yeah. There had been contacts in the Bush administration, a, a couple of meetings around Afghanistan, a couple around Iraq. At the end of the Bush administration, there was a, a couple of contacts around the nuclear issue, but nothing like what we were trying to establish, which was an ongoing, durable negotiation, the end of which would be coming to terms on the future of Iran's nuclear program. And so that was a big leap for both sides to take. And you know, we were we didn't want to make a misstep. They didn't want to make a misstep. So there was mm-hmm. a defensive quality to the initial mm-hmm. exchanges. Mm-hmm. Um, but as the negotiation unfolded, we began to feel more comfortable with the fact that because it was happening in secret, and because nothing was agreed till everything was agreed, we could play around with potential creative right. solutions right. more and find a way to. How, a, how, how long was that first agreement. meeting? First meeting was a full day. It was a full day. Yes, and then you both, both delegations left for lunch or whatever somewhere else. Or left that evening. I got on a plane from Muscat to Dubai, Dubai to Beijing, Beijing to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, where I met up with Secretary Clinton, which is where she was. So, yes. and you briefed her on what was going on. I actually, until we got on the aircraft flying out of Ulaanbaatar, where it was safe, yeah. I, I didn't brief her, and no one else knew. And the delegation. They didn't know that you were doing this? No. Now, you're part of the whole kind of inner circle here, and you're disappearing at various times. Right. They thought I had left to deal with the personal issue. Ah. Yeah. I see. Other than the secretary. Now, after the Iranian election, they brought in a new delegation. Right. So tell me a little bit about about that. Uh, Everything you discussed before was just history? Uh, Uh, No. We had made very little progress before, to be honest. But one thing we had agreed was we were going to do this in two steps. We were going to get to an interim agreement that froze the Iranian program in place um, and thereby gave us time to have a negotiation over a Mm -hmm. comprehensive agreement. And the new negotiators agreed that that was the best way forward. Right. And so what did they... What did they ask for? What did they demand, the Iranians? What they wanted oh, yeah. was relief from sanctions, which that's what they want. Really squeezing them. That is what they wanted. They wanted. So the relief. sanctions were working. Sanctions were working. The sanctions brought the Iranians to the table in the first instance. And just a quick history lesson: where did the sanctions start, and what was President Obama's role in those? Sanctions? So the sanctions began as unilateral sanctions, going all the way back to the '90s in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But we couldn't really get the rest of the world engaged or on board with them. Mm-hmm. Then, through the Bush administration, they added some UN Security Council resolutions that okay. had some sanctions, okay. but mm-hmm. very modest. This very is Bush limited. two or one? Bush two. Yeah. So when Obama comes in in 2009, a lot of sanctions on the books, but very little impact. Mm -hmm. Working with Congress and then working with the international community, we put in place a global sanctions architecture uh, undergirded by a UN Security Council resolution that over the course of 2011 and 2012, leading up to the first engagement with the Iranians, uh, resulted in a somewhere between a 30% and 50% drop in Iranian GDP because we were able to more than cut in half their oil exports and we were able to freeze tens of billions of wow. dollars of Iranian assets that's, overseas. Uh, that's incredible. Yeah. So that's the thing they, they, yes. they want. And um, 
Were they working on nuclear weapons for decades? The uh, initial flirtation with nuclear weapons occurred through the 1980s, but it was really in the 90s that the program kicked into gear mm-hmm. um, through intelligence uh, and exposure of clandestine facilities. We, the Israelis and others, became aware of it in the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, our assessment was they stopped working on this program in a serious way in 2003 um, and maybe con- you know, did some marginal flirtation with it after that. But they were building up capabilities as part of what was supposedly a peaceful civilian nuclear program that could be dual use, that could be repurposed for yeah. military right. use if they decided to. So essentially what they were doing from 2003 forward was keeping their option open. And we needed to close that option off. And um, how confident are you that that option is actually closed off now? Well, I'm a little bit nervous about where things stand right now because with the United States withdrawing from the JCPOA, Iran's incentive to remain in it, as opposed to go back to the business of building up their nuclear capabilities, is much reduced. So the Iranians are being faced with a tough choice right now. Do they kind of grin and bear it for a while and hope things change in U.S. politics um, and that the U.S. comes back to the deal? Or do they end up saying, if we're getting less out of the deal, we're giving less into it, and we're going to start aspects of our program up again? So I think we're in a dangerous moment right now. But do I believe the deal itself blocked Iran's pathways to a nuclear weapon? I believe it did. Why do you think Iran as a country has been so active in their region militarily and um, apparently for a long time supporting terrorist activities in different parts of the world. Why is it in their interest to do that? You know, it's interesting. Henry Kissinger um, once remarked that Iran has to decide whether it's a nation or a cause. Mm. Uh, And there are elements of Iranian foreign policy which kind of transcend normal national interest, Mm -hmm. their revolutionary ideology, their desire to support groups beyond their borders like Mm -hmm. Hezbollah and Lebanon uh, as an example of that. Um, But a big part of it is you have a regime in Tehran that both to preserve its grip on power domestically and to fulfill its ideology feels it has to export the Islamic revolution. And that has it active beyond its borders, including in some really deadly and destabilizing ways. And um, from our perspective in dealing with the Iranian nuclear program, we felt that if you can put a lid on that program, keep them from developing nuclear weapons, Mm -hmm. you will have dealt with a significant regional and global security threat. And without giving up the opportunity to work on all these other issues, to try to push back on them. But trying to negotiate away Iran's kind of revolution is a very difficult thing to do. Mm -hmm. So we narrowed the scope of the negotiation to the nuclear program itself. You know, earlier you talked about a debate you had at, uh, at Oxford about uh, Islam Islam in the West. And so um, how would that debate go in uh, Iran? Um, can Islam in the West coexist? Well, what's interesting is the Iranian uh, regime in power right now would describe themselves as a, as a democracy. Uh, now, they right. are we a could. democracy in, in name they, only they can in say a way. That, yes. um, look, What this particular group of essentially kleptocratic uh, clerics who sit atop the Iranian power structure claim as the mantle of 
Islam, mm-hmm. uh, I would argue is not kind of d- – d- does not give them a n- monopoly on the religion. Mm-hmm. And so their particular brand of running a government is not consistent with not just our values, but I would say universal values of basic human dignity and human rights, the way that they treat their own people. But I don't think that tells us much about the broader question of Islam right. writ large. Right, right. One, one last question about this. Um, so Iran has, or Persia has an incredible history, huge uh, influence, and many, many ways very powerful and important and, and positive. And, and, and I think the population was pretty well educated. I don't know if that's as true today as it was. Uh, what about all the people that live there? Do they, after the, rev- the 1979, the, the Islamic re- Revolution, is it the case that they believe all of that, that that's kind of part of who they are? Uh, and the idea of being more westernized or caring more about in, in small l liberal thought, which I think was part of what, what, what was in Iran at some point, uh, is that gone? Is that It's definitely not gone. I mean, I think there are competing strains within uh, Iranian political life. You saw the Green Revolution in 2009, a great hunger for a different kind of approach than what mm-hmm. was on offer from the regime. The election of President Rouhani in 2013 was all about change and moderation, uh, a message being driven by the public. Um, and so that hunger, that appetite mm-hmm. is still very much there. But There are also deep strains of religiosity. There are deeply conservative elements of Iranian society. So like Mm -hmm. the United States, it's a a complex uh, mosaic where it's it's a little hard to assign it a a kind of singular national character. Right. So uh, I have two political type questions and then two personal questions. We'll we'll wrap up. Um, uh, First, in 2019, as we are today, uh, what should the democratic stance be with respect to uh, President Trump and the endless turmoil? And I'm thinking about whether, for example, not only, but for example, are impeachment proceedings a wise move to make politically? Um, um, because I think to this point, there's not yet, at least publicly known, definitive information that says that laws have been broken. There's indications, but it's not definitive yet. Um, uh, and just more more generally, I mean, how... What, what's the state of, of, uh, of, of, of de- democratic thought today um, and political strategy today in, in the era of, uh, of, of Trump and especially where he is now in the beginning of his uh, second two years? So I believe that impeachment only makes sense if it's a bipartisan exercise. That is that if it's not simply a democratic majority in the House without substantial support and from Republicans. Is there a circumstance where that's possible? I cannot readily foresee it given the stranglehold that Trump has on the Republican Party, but one could imagine a hypothetical Mm. in which Mm. Republicans broke with him. Just, I mean, keep in mind that until – it's like the Hemingway line about bankruptcy. It happens gradually and then suddenly. (laughs) That that's what happened in Watergate with Nixon. Mm. He he had a firm Republican wall against anything like impeachment Mm. and then it broke. Now, I think – that is much less likely to happen with Trump, and it will take something ridiculously dramatic to happen. That's quite but a I'm, statement because there's been a lot of ridiculous and a lot of dramatic already. Yeah, fair so enough. So we're really going. So, okay, so <laughs> stupendously, stupendously, you know, whatever <laughs> adjective, something, because I, okay. I agree with yeah. you wholeheartedly. But So it's unlikely, but yeah. I'm not okay. going to rule okay. it out. But it probably means that we don't see impeachment mm-hmm. and that the way, mm-hmm. nor should we, 
um, and that the way to deal with Donald Trump is to deal with him at the ballot box. With respect to the Democratic Party, 2016 was really a fight between the left of the party and the center of the party in a way, uh, Bernie and Hillary. 2020, I don't think is going to be fought along that axis to the same extent. I think it is much more going to be fought along two theories of the case that relate to Trump. One is we need someone who can go to the ramparts and be a fighter. And the other is we need a uniter who can pull the country together and heal it. Mm -hmm. And you will have different candidates Mm -hmm. making each of those arguments. And I don't know yet which the Democratic Party electorate is more likely to respond to. Right, right, which really is kind of the second political question about 2020 and what you might pro, uh, what you might think might, might happen. Um, there are a lot of candidates, and there are going to be more and more, maybe the most ever, probably. Um, and, um, and they all come with a different set of strengths and weaknesses, is always, always the case. And actually way more women than ever before. Yes. And maybe, I don't know whether there will be more women than men or not, but that in and of itself I think is going to have a very powerful and positive impact on generation of young uh, girls. Yes. Uh, so yes. That's, that's, that's a good thing. But um, um, do you have any early favorites in, in, in this? You probably can't answer that. But. No, it's hard to answer that, especially because, uh, you know, um, some of my former bosses are thinking about getting into the <laughs> race. Course. Other people I've worked with are thinking about getting into the race. So um, I can't speak to favorites, but uh, I will say this. At this point in 2015, Donald Trump was not contemplated as necessarily being a candidate, let alone as being the Republican nominee, let alone being mm-hmm. elected president. And Bernie Sanders in January of 2015 was not contemplated as a serious challenger for the Democratic nomination. Mm-hmm. So, In other words, we don't know. We don't know. So two last quick questions. Uh, if, if you could take a mulligan and do something else in your career, which you know I know you won't do it and don't want to do it, at least at this stage, but is there something else you could have done uh, or you could imagine have done for your career rather than the path you went on? Yeah, you know, I've struggled I, um, with two different models of public service, one being the path I went down, which is diplomacy, politics, international law, uh, kind of a Washington-focused career. But the other one was one rooted in Minnesota in the community and, yeah. and being a lawyer and mm-hmm. a pillar of the community in Minnesota, being involved in public life in a place that I care deeply about. And I didn't take that path. Um, and oftentimes I thought about steering off the path I'm on to go down it. Um, uh, and Minnesota's always kind of had a calling to me. Um, but that has been a consistent struggle in thinking about what is a 50-year theory of public service, um, the, the struggle between these two alternative models. Right, right, right. Okay, last question. We'd like to ask all of our guests this question because uh, you know what? People just find it fascinating how, how, you meet, how you've met your spouse, your partner, um, uh, you mentioned before you're, you're, you're married, and so how did you meet your, your wife? I met my wife, Maggie, at the Munich Security Conference, which is... Very, very, <laughs> yeah, very romantic. Where everyone does meet their spouse, I think. Um, so the Munich Security Conference is a gathering of world leaders uh, and, you know, academics and intellectuals as well that happens every year in Munich. Um, I was there with Secretary Clinton in 2012, we had just failed to reach agreement with the Russians on a Security Council resolution on Syria. Mm-hmm. So they had just cast their veto. Uh, Maggie was working for Senator Joe Lieberman at the time, who was there on a congressional delegation. Uh, Hillary was meeting with this group of senators, including Senator Lieberman, and I was standing uh, outside the meeting. 
Um, actually, the meeting took place at a wine bar in a hotel, and so I was standing at the edge. And Maggie walks up to me and says, I understand you're the guy I need to talk to about everything the administration is doing wrong about Syria. <laughs> nice. That, that's a great pickup line. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> yeah. So she proceeded to um, ah. school me on Syria for a while, and the rest is history. That's great. That's a great, uh, great story. Uh, so, you know, Jake Sullivan, thanks for being on. You've been on the Axe Files. We're mega fans of, uh, uh, of that show, and coming here is a great honor to have you here. And uh, really, really a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Jake Sullivan. Thanks for having me. <laughs>